Hello there, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman, and you're listening to Exploring Different Brains. Hi, I'm Dr. Hacky Reitman. Welcome to another episode of Exploring Different Brains. Today we bring you all the way up to Brunswick, Canada, to Sean Smith, and he's the founder of Don't Dis My Ability, a company that advocates and offers counseling related to neurodiversity. How you doing, Sean? I'm doing great, Hacky. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. You know, you got a lot of tough Canadians up there. They're tough. They're tough. Tell us about yourself, Sean. You've done some great things, and I like your style, and I like your shirt. Don't Thank you. diss my ability. Right. Well, and, and so the way that everything kind of came about, Hacky, and, and I'm so excited to have connected with different brains because... I had been practicing neurodiversity without really even knowing it. Um, but I also identify as being neurodiverse. Like I, I was diagnosed at age 30 uh, with ADHD and attentive type. And my life before then was so much, you know, so different uh, from what it is now. And so, and, and part of what I do is kind of sharing my story with people to, to relate to. And I find that's one of the things that makes me an effective communicator and counselor and psychotherapist is that I have unique insight into what it's like for individuals with different invisible disabilities, having gone through, you know, 30 years of hell. I mean, uh, four years to finish three years of high school, 32 attempts to earn the 18 credits required to graduate, including failing grade 10 math four times, uh, to being diagnosed at age 30, going back, uh, getting a master's degree in counseling psychology, and challenging the system along the way. Because uh, I found as an individual with a disability, I was trying to apply and, and to different programs to get different types of supports and um, not, not fitting in the box that they that they had available. So I kind of saw that, you know, I had two options. I could turn and go the other way or I could uh, challenge the system and stretch that box, which is what I've been able to do. What were your main diagnosis? Was it just ADHD? Not that that's not a lot by itself. Or did you have any comorbidities with that? ADHD and attentive type, I, w- I was borderline math disability, um, but that, that was it, uh, which is pretty rare. I mean, the, the, there's usually a high percentage of comorbidity associated with ADHD. Uh, so, again, u- unique in that way. So now let's, let's fast forward. So now we went from you're struggling to get through high school. It's taking you four years to finish three years. You're struggling, struggling. And now we fast forward to now. Now, what kind of educational degrees have you gotten? And what is your official titles now? Okay, well, uh, you know, I have tons of interesting stories. But, the, you know, when I look back um, at, well, where I'm at now, and I guess kind of going back to the future, right? Uh, when I was in high school, I started playing football my first year of grade 12. Uh, my second year, I was an all-star. And so as an all-star, you get packages from every major Canadian university with a football team. And it was such a high, you know, going down. I almost felt like a peacock with my feathers, though, right? Uh, and then as I opened one by one, I just went down and slid further down and into the rabbit hole, realizing I couldn't go to any of these schools. Um, and so uh, a CEGEP in Quebec, they have a CEGEP system, which is kind of like a prep school system. And so for the first time in the school's history, John Abbott College came recruiting out of province in New Brunswick. And the head registrar was also the defensive coordinator. And they snuck me in. And without them, I wouldn't be anywhere. 
so I'm very, very grateful and appreciative to them for taking a chance on me. And I'm actually one of their success stories. Uh, and after I finished there, I went to uh, a place where I, I did my BA. And I, I don't talk about that school uh, because when I went back to upgrade as a mature student and tried to access um, their uh, affirmative action policy as a student with a disability, I was discriminated against twice and filed two separate human rights complaints against the university uh, and tried to, to pitch an inclusive policy. And rather than uh, do the right thing, they hired a huge law firm to take me on. Wow, what a great story. We might have to write a screenplay about you. <laughs> <laughs> I, oh, trust me, I've got all kinds of great stories about, you know, for me, the way that I see it is that, and, and I think this is where you and I really connect and, and how our companies are so much alike. You know, society has fixated on the square peg and we've tried to manipulate, contort, shift, do whatever we can to try and cram it through the round hole of society. And the shift that we have, our take is, there's nothing wrong with that individual. It's society. So my work has been on pushing the boundaries and, and stretching that hole and informing society of what's right with, with us instead of focusing on what's wrong as though we're parts to a machine that once identified or labeled can be fixed, which just isn't the case. And, and I think if we can do that in a positive way, uh, what I'm finding is uh, a lot of the institutions and individuals who would be glad to help if they had more knowledge, they're just ignorant. I don't mean they're stupid. I mean, they're ignorant. They haven't been exposed to it. I mean, I'm a perfect example. Here I was, I made this whole movie inspired by my daughter taking on the whole system. And I didn't even know until after she got out of college that Rebecca also, on top of her other stuff, had Asperger's and was on the autism spectrum. I didn't even know what Asperger's and autism were. Mm -hmm. And what I'm seeing now is that we're all on a spectrum of sorts and everybody's got a little bit of this or a lot of that. And when you start adding up uh, ADHD, I don't know, what are the statistics for ADHD up there in Canada? What's it like, 10, 10% or something? Uh, I, don't, I don't know what the stats are, but I, you know, when I hear people say that it's overdiagnosed, I, I challenge that. I actually think it's underdiagnosed um, because what we know of ADHD and, and other invisible disabilities, there are going to be more, not less. So if we're focusing on, you know, there being less and, and making this issue of it being overdiagnosed, it deflects from what actually needs to be done. You know, instead of focusing on a system that people perceive to be broken, you know, why, why aren't we just looking at the individuals affected and, and putting our energy and resources there on how to help people? Now, what position did you play in football? Uh, I was a defensive tackle. And then when I, what was really cool about um, CEGEP in Quebec is that it's a Canadian field, but they play American rules. So when I, when I made the switch from high school to college, I played, I played nose tackle which was awesome because with American rules, it's like the NFL. Uh, there's, there's no yard between um, the defensive line and the, and the football. So you can be right there, right at it. Um, whereas in Canadian football, you have to start a yard back. So you're already running more than you want to <laughs> as a big person. Uh, so I, I liked that I could be right there. And, and sometimes I was actually able to swat the ball uh, right out of the center's hands before he could get it to the quarterback. Wow, you must have been quick. I'm pretty quick for a big man. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us from your point of view, uh, the biggest single challenge, aside from the fact 
that society wants one size fits all, okay? Um, what's the biggest single thing you think our audience might not get about ADHD from your point of view? Well, when I meet somebody and, and they expose to me that they have ADHD, one of the first things that I'll say is, welcome to the world of the uniquely gifted. And, and I believe that not only in, I got goosebumps, not only in my experiences of going from failing at everything. I mean, I, I didn't learn to count until I was in my 20s. I tied my shoes the wrong way before I tied them the right way until I started taking medication to being at the top of my class for my master's degree. So just the big shift in, in seeing that I have specific gifts and so I focus on those and it's not that I don't have challenges. But I, I try to bring in people for whom my challenges are their gifts, right? To, to build capacity and community and, and to lift each other up and help each other out. So for me, and I, and I talked about this in a, a video that I made when we talked about neurodiversity and, and when I talked to parents, because a lot of my work is with parents, to, to get them to understand the, and I don't like to frame it in the damage that's been done, but I frame it in a way that when you think of from the, the time the individual wakes up until they go to bed and their interactions and, and where they're going and who they're with, you know, what percentage of that is being told that what they're doing is not right and that is wrong? And to flip that around and, and to think, okay, you know, if you were them and, you, you know, people will share, well, they're isolating and they don't really talk much. And then when I flip it around and say, well, you know, if 90% of your day was being told that what you're doing is wrong and not right, would you want to spend time with you? When did you have the epiphany to start Don't Diss My Ability? I was, uh, well, the, it just, it kind of came to me shortly after my diagnosis. I was working in the, the, the Northwest Territories at a residential treatment facility for at-risk youth, way up in, in Northern Canada. And uh, I was, you know, there was one of the, one of the residents was on kind of a 24-hour watch and and I, I was at the door, and uh, things just started uh, flowing and com coming together. I, I, I describe it as, you know, there, it just always seemed like the pieces never fit together, uh, you know, the pieces of the puzzle that are in my life. And then all of a sudden, they just started to come together uh, in, in ways that, I mean, I could process um, my thoughts and emotions just so quickly. And things that didn't make sense all of my life just all of a sudden started to make sense. And so I actually wrote a, a rap song, and it was called Don't Diss My Ability, and I just had this kind of, uh, you know, and I'm not a musical person, but I had this beat in my head, and so I just started to, to talk about, you know, my, my life and, and don't diss my ability, you know, and, and talking about um, perceived limitations by society and how, you know, we often think we can't do something without ever trying it, and, and knowing that, my, my brain was kind of given a jump start by, by the medication. And so things just started moving so, so quickly. And don't diss my ability was just something that popped into my head and I just couldn't get it out. Um, and so it just, it kind of became my, my anthem. And, and I developed a mantra based on that. Um, don't diss my ability. I may not learn in a conventional manner, but that doesn't mean I can't learn only that you have not been able to reach me. So coming up with unique, innovative ways to try and reach people, uh, which has helped them uh, gravitate and understand things in a way, because it just wasn't framed in a way that they could comprehend or understand until I do it for them. 
Sean, talk about from your perspective, your view about medications in general. Sure. Well, I, I would put it this way because I've met people who are for and people who are against, I guess, and, and some people who are on the fence. And so I don't, I don't promote medication, but what I do is I, I promote my story and, and what medication has done for me. And if somebody were to say, you know, we're going to take that away and it would be gone forever, uh, the best thing for me to compare it to would be like wrongful imprisonment. Wow. How, how, how dare you? You know, I, I was kind of trapped in, in my own mind and in my own thoughts. And now that I'm free of that and the thought of somebody threatening to take that away and put me back in that place is not something I'd ever want to visit. Now, my experience is, is I acknowledge is pretty extreme, um, but it, I think the first thing that people need to do, and, and you talking about you know, people not knowing what their kids' interests are kind of frames that because you need to know your children well enough and, and have a good enough relationship with them that you can talk about anything. And medication is something that should be discussed, but there are other strategies that can be put in place um, but that requires parenting. That doesn't mean the TV's parenting, which happens too much, or video games or electronics are parenting. We can't expect kids to just know if somebody's not teaching them. So if you're not modeling for your kids the behavior you want to see, you can't just expect it to happen. So, you know, I, under, I have great self-awareness in that, you know, I can do this or I can do that. If my wife wants to have a conversation with me, we have an understanding. If you want to compete with the TV, that's your choice, but you're not going to win. Uh, so we both know that the TV needs to be turned off. Uh, and, and understanding, you know, if our kids are hyper-focused, if they're doing something, you know, and, and I have, uh, you know, some great stories about my kids, you know, and, and talking to my son who is, uh, you know, a lot of characteristics of, of ADHD, but I mean, boy, he's smart as a whip. Uh, but when he's hyper-focused on something and I say his name, um, I might have to say it two, three, four times, and then the, the realization that on the, the last time I would raise my voice to say his name. Well, when someone's hyper-focused, that is the equivalent of scaring them awake. And so his response to me is to yell back, and I would say, why are you yelling at me? And he'd say, because you yelled at me. And he's not wrong. So I know that you know, when he's in that space, the times prior to me raising my voice didn't happen because he didn't hear it. So to argue that is, is futile. So I know that if I want his attention when he's in that space, that I need to go maybe put my arm around him. You know, I, I need to do something that's comforting in a way that I'm garnering his attention, not demanding it, because it sets someone back. So for, for parents, I think there are strategies that can, be, that can be put in place, but I think a lot of times it requires work on the parent or guardian and it, it's overwhelming because when they look for resources, there are tons and tons of books on what to do. And one of the first things I'll tell people is, you know, toss those books aside because the difference between thinking and knowing is experience. And we have too many people who think they know without the experience. And so what I offer is that I was once that kid. And so I can relate and identify what's happening and, and what their thought process is like and where the kid's at and, and really, you know, help them to refocus and reshape and question some of the, the choices that they've made in, in their parenting style, not in, a, in an accusatory fashion, um, but we, we share a lot of laughs and, and a lot of tears about 
you know, there are some things that they've done that have not been necessarily in the best, you know, not the best benefit for their child, but easy in the moment. Well, it makes all the sense in the world. You know, it's uh, you've taken a walk in their moccasins, so to speak, and so you're in a great position. Now, have you written any books? Uh, I haven't, but I have a title in mind for one I'd like to write. One of the challenges I have, Hacky, is that uh, my fingers can't keep up to my brain. Um, and, and so I try to record things and do audio and go back. But I kind of, uh, I compare people with ADHD kind of to dogs in the way that if anybody's ever tried to train a dog or had a puppy, uh, dogs like to move forward. They don't like to move backwards. It's an uncomfortable feeling. And that's kind of how I feel. Um, I'm just constantly moving forward. So I'm piecing some things together and I'm trying to get uh, some help. Uh, but I have a, a title in mind. Um, uh, we've all heard the term Left for Dead. Um, my book title would be Left for Dumb. And although I don't have a, a book on the go hacky, one of the things that I am doing, um, I'm getting involved in the, in the entrepreneurial startup community, which is just right now it's, it's flourishing where I am. And I recently received Catalyst funding from the Pond Deshpande Center. And so I was awarded a grant to team up with an animation studio to animate my thought process. Oh, how cool is that? So we, we've had our, uh, we actually got the funding and I've had uh, a meeting with uh, the animator and he's worked on Family Guy, Caillou, Sesame Street. Uh, so wow. very, you know, very well known in the industry. Um, and we're going to have a Kickstarter campaign coming out. So we're, we're just working on kind of the trailer and, and conceptualizing things. Uh, we'll put out a trailer and have a Kickstarter uh, campaign to try and get enough funding to, uh, to make it what it needs to be. How did you meet your wife? Uh, we actually met at a, we were both working at a, at a nightclub. Uh, I was a, I've, I've had so many jobs. You were a bouncer at a nightclub. I was a, I was a head doorman at a nightclub. I've done everything from, uh, geez, I was a landscaper. I was a short order cook. I was a doorman. I was a sheriff's officer. I was a blackjack dealer. Um, I was a therapeutic foster parent. Uh, I've a transition facilitator and independent. I've had so many jobs, uh, but each each time was a, a learning process. I didn't know how to count until I actually got that job as a blackjack dealer. I, I couldn't count any type of stimuli would be like it erased the process from my memory uh, to the point where I had, I had anxiety and depression because I would put the change back in my pocket and walk away because I, I couldn't do the math. And then when I moved to uh, Lake Tahoe for a summer of all places, a uh, very touristy place. Um, you know, they wanted the English-speaking Canadian to to work the table, and, and I, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be a slot attendant and push the cart around, but they insisted. And, I mean, just these aha moments of not being diagnosed, but, you know, because I had something tactile to manipulate, I could count. I couldn't do it from my head to put on paper, but once I had poker chips, which had the denominations, um, and how they chunk things up to teach people how to deal cards, but also to, um, to pay out and take money. That was presented me, to me in such a way that I could learn, I learned how to do mental math uh, better than my wife, who did two degrees concurrent. Uh, so it, it's, you know, again, t 
teaching people things in unorthodox ways. What a fascinating story. You're full of them. I'm, I love listening to your stories. Thank you. Um, watch our interview with Matthew Schnepps. And I'll tell you why I'm telling you about Matt Schnepps, who I'll introduce you to sometime. Like yourself, he has a beard. Um, a very <laughs> interesting guy up in Boston. He is the founder of a partnership for visual learning that he put together with uh, the Smithsonian, Harvard, and MIT. Oh, wow. He was an astrophysicist by trade. And in my interviews with him, <laughs> he's, a, he's a funny guy, but he gets mad I did at watch, me. I did watch one. I, now that you mention it, I remember. Yeah, he, he's a unique cat. He, he is, and he, say, and he says, I'm an astrophysicist. Why can't we just give people the tools they need if parts of their brain don't do I said, what do you mean? He goes, ask me how much is seven times six. I said, how much is seven times six? He goes, I don't know, but I have a calculator that can figure it out for me. Mm -hmm. The only school he got into was MIT, you know, yeah. because he couldn't do well. He was dyslexic and couldn't do math, but he's absolutely brilliant. And again, it goes back to what you're saying that what is with this one-size-fits-all of what Sean is calling the square peg, you know? Why, why is it? Why can't we just take everyone's gifts and use them? Well, and, and I actually, I, I kind of peg the term the inclusion illusion um, because as, as an advocate and having to battle for things, and, and, you know, my wife is a great example. She used to call me a conspiracy theorist. Um, but as I tried to access different supports and, and services, I, I kind of understood that part of my gift was looking at systems and, and processes. And I could learn more from the absence of information than I could by what was actually provided. And so digging and challenging um, government uh, and in, you know the university that I'd gone to uh, and trying to affect positive social change by you know, again, not fitting in that square box and, and challenging and people saying, oh, no, you know, a university wouldn't do that. Well, they did twice um, and that our provincial government. And that's another one that uh, I wrote a paper called Systemic Discrimination is Commonly Practiced by the Province of New Brunswick, a comprehensive analysis of the Equal Employment Opportunity Program, where, you know, I was diagnosed with a disability. I thought, OK, I'm going to get a cushy government job uh, with this affirmative action program. And I can't tell you how many jobs I applied for, but I can tell you I had no interviews. And in Canada, in New Brunswick especially, being bilingual is a huge asset. So I'm fluent in both English and French. Um, I had a university degree, newly diagnosed. I couldn't get an interview to save my life. And so when I went back to upgrade, I turned the five courses that I had to take as a mature student to bring my GPA up uh, to focus on that particular program. And in the 25-year history of that program, nobody had asked the questions that I did. They'd never compiled the information, uh, more than, I think, about $20 million spent. And no one, like the program had never been audited. And, and so in, in looking at these specific programs, you know, when people tell me, oh, the system doesn't work, I, I challenge them right away. Because by stating that it doesn't work, it implies that it was intended to work in the first place. And the people who make the rules seldom have to follow the rules. And so in being an advocate and, and pushing the boundaries and, and limits, um, I, I challenge things that, that people see. 
or, or in sometimes things people don't see because they haven't been forced into a situation where they needed to. For me, you know, I, I was early 30s. My wife was in school. I had two small children, both under the age of four, and, and trying to decide, ah, I just got goosebumps. You know, like, what, what kind of a person do I want to be? Do I want to be the kind of person that my kids are proud of? Or do I want to just pretend like none of this ever happened? And I couldn't do that. You know, I, I was on a path. And you're either coming with me or you're not. I, I try to collaborate with people. You know, inclusion is happening. You're either with me or, or you're not. So let's do it together. But if you're not, you got to know I'm coming. You know, it's this is what's happening. There, there's no, there's no, there's no moving backwards. Like any movement in the opposite direction is not, not in anyone's best interest. You know, so a shift in government or, or politics, um, you know, it, it's always interesting to to hear what they say because I hear what they're not saying. Very well said. You hear what they're not saying. That's very profound. What do you think of your new uh, your new leader Trudeau up there? Um, it, for me, it's not so much a, a matter of the a leader. Uh, I just I I generally don't trust politicians, and and one of the reasons why I wear this shirt is because I don't uh, I don't want to put on what I would call a suit of armor, um, which deflects any type of personal accountability or responsibility. So to ask a politician a question, I'm looking for a yes or no answer. And the fact that they can't do that and dance around it tells me a, a lot about them, uh, which means that if I can't have a candid conversation and I can't ask you a real question and you give me a real answer, then this isn't a real relationship and it's not a real dynamic that I'm going to invest my time into because it's a waste of my time. Have you seen a lot of metaphors for you between being a defensive nose tackle in football and what you experience in life? No, I, I, I haven't really. I mean, other than that I've had to push and, and, and keep pushing, um, not, not really. But it's one of those things where, you know, without that college, I mean, and I, and I have a tattoo of their, their logo on my shoulder. It's the only tattoo I have. And, uh, you know, I call them to check in. Uh, you know, of the probably 30 students that they rec recruited out of province, uh, I was undiagnosed. There were only two of us that actually finished the program and graduated. And, and the other student was diagnosed with their learning disability at the time, and, and I was not diagnosed with ADHD. And we're the only two, right? So what, what does it say about, you know, us and our determination, right? It's, that, I think that's one thing that people really don't understand is how, how determined we are and how we can be. And, and part of it is, for, for me anyway, and, I, and I've been working with more and more entrepreneurs uh, with different forms of invisible disabilities to help them um, kind of turn things off. Like I don't watch TV really, I don't watch the news and I don't have cable. And the reason being is that I, I'm so heavily impacted by what's happening around me that I feel everything. And by allowing all of that information into my head and into my thought process distracts me from the things I feel I like can affect positive social change. And so I, I limit, uh, you know, Facebook I use for my business really. I, I love to cook. Uh, I also call myself the ADHD chef. Uh, and so I, I try to get into my zone. So, you know, when people are on Facebook and, and social media, you know, whether they acknowledge it or not, it's, it's, uh, 
they're creating a hierarchy in their minds of where they put themselves based on what they're seeing. And my view is that as long as you're spending time on Facebook looking at other people's relationships, how much time are you actually investing into your own and challenging people to, to look at things that way? You know, if somebody's talking about, you know, where they spend, spend an hour or two hours on Facebook or social media, you know, every day, then that adds up. How much work are they putting into their relationships with their partner, their spouse, or their kids? So really trying to flip it around. And this is really uh, an interesting take that I've used with uh, entrepreneurs who are kind of following my lead and seeing the benefit of, you know, it's not that what's happening in the world around us is not important. It, it is. But I don't need to know about every gruesome thing that happens on this planet when it happens. Because there isn't something I can do about it in that moment. But if I'm exposed to that, I can't help but feel the emotions that, that come with that, that people should feel. But for me, it's, it's too much. I get overwhelmed and anxious. And so I need to focus and limit my attention on the things I feel like can affect positive social change. And using that with um, entrepreneurs, uh, you know, they're starting to gravitate more, more towards me. Uh, the, the individual that, um, you know, I, I, was, I was helping, well, the animation studio that I'm teaming up with um, you know, we've become really good, really good friends um, because he, he gravitates to my kind of way of thinking and my thought process of understanding, okay, this is exactly what I need to do and then this is how I break it down to get there. You know, any, anything else that's outside of that, if it doesn't have to do directly with me, then it doesn't have to do directly with me. So why am I going there? Well, and you know, it, again, that's very well said. And one of my mentors, Bernie Carsonell, who's 77 years old, very interesting guy himself, but he always makes me answer the question, what are you trying to accomplish? And many times we don't take that step back and say, what are we trying to accomplish? And parenthetically, of course, what are your priorities? Well, in, in, in the startup world, I'm starting to understand now and in, in you know, being involved in, in startups, you know, one of the things that businesses want to know is what value are you adding? And that's the bottom line. Because if you're not adding value, you're just not adding, right? So how, how is it that we talk ourselves into adding value? And, and this is something that I'm, you know, trying to help different individuals with invisible disabilities who are uniquely gifted in trying to help them find employment. And the biggest challenge being, this, um, you know, human resources has boxed people out because they want a certain education in, in order to hire somebody. And I mean, I've met individuals who, you know, one individual uh, could type, you know, 80 words a minute and they wanted to work in the food industry. And so part of what I do when I, when I meet somebody who has a unique story and a unique gift, I contact my network of people. I mean, I'll... I'll contact my friend who owns the animation studio. Say, hey, can you look at this person's resume? You know, because I, I love technology, but I don't know the ins and outs of all the certifications and all that stuff. And he'll he'll tell me, you know, good or or not, or this person has a gift. Maybe I can connect them with this organization. So it's about you know, trying to build people up, trying to build capacity within community. And one of the things that I find lacking, especially I'm 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 a for-profit company, um, and, and my experience in the nonprofit field, field has not been that great because their funding is dependent on uh, 
really, you know, government grants or whatever it may be, and they're going to cling to that. Their life depends on that. And so one of the things that I often say is that in, in this field, if you are not trying to work yourself out of a job, if you truly do not believe that someday you can work yourself out of a job, you are in it for all of the wrong reasons. So building capacity, it's about lifting people up, not securing your own position. If we're about creating dependence, you can't start creating, or if we're about promoting independence, you can't create dependence by trying to keep people where they're at. If you want things done differently, you need to take a different innovative approach. And well, it's, then, it's, then what you have to do within your organization is empower the individual to seek their own level. And uh, one of the ways you do that is by letting them choose what they want to do, when they want to do it, how they want to do it, as long as it fits in with your overall philosophy and what you're trying to accomplish. So I think as a society, we've got to recognize that one size does not fit all. And I agree with you 100%. And I couldn't agree with your philosophy more. And it comes down to the individual, which if you think of it holistically as giant corporations, that's what the entrepreneur is. That's what, yeah. that's what he oh, is. In a, in a big way, in a big way. And uh, the mom and pop businesses, which I don't know how it works in Canada, but my folks had a gas station in Jersey City where two people with high school educations could make a living for their four kids and get them all educated. And the mom and pops, the equivalent of that now is the, the startup, the startup usually technology-based company. I, very much so, interestingly enough, my parents were also entrepreneurs and owned a gas station. A Get Shell out of town, really? Yep. yep. Which brand was it? Shell. Oh, Shell. We were uh, yep. flying A that turned into Getty, and it was called Tidewater back then, too. Okay. Shell. Yeah, my, my parents have owned a few different businesses. They owned uh, a snow removal and landscaping company. They still own the snow removal. Uh, my mom's deceased now, but... They they own they built an A and W restaurant a fast food restaurant, and and later sold that. Uh, so I I've been around it all all of my life, but in that I always felt like, you know, if I was going to do anything, I had to do it for them. You know, I, I didn't have this notion at any time that I I could build my own business. It was, you know, it almost felt like they were keeping it going because I was going to need that to fall back on later. You know, like that, that's where I was at. I mean, my parents had me scared that, you know, I, I was going to be, uh, you know, working at McDonald's. And I mean, I grew up in a, a suburban middle-class neighborhood. I mean, where, nice where big house. Where did you grow up, Sean? Whereabouts? Yeah. Uh, Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. We are, we border, um, New Brunswick borders the state of Maine. So that's, that's where we're at. Fredericton is the capital city of New Brunswick. And it's, it's a very nice, uh, picturesque place, but it's also very conservative. And that's been one of the, the challenges, regardless of uh, conserv conservative or liberal government, it's still quite conservative. And so even though, you know, when I talk to people, one, one of the things I say is that everybody knows somebody with a disability. Statistically, it's impossible not. And if I'm engaging with someone and they claim to not, then I just end the conversation because it's just out of sheer ignorance, and I'm not going to waste my time. But it, it is true. Everybody knows somebody with a disability. 
And what I find challenging when I'm challenging systems is that if I were to speak to any one individual and say, is this right? We know what they would say. The answer is no. But because they have this, uh, this identity, this conglomerate or you know, this business that they can hide behind, it takes away any type of personal accountability. It's almost like, you know, the, the curtain being drawn in The Wizard of Oz, right? Everybody's scared to see what's behind that curtain, so nobody pulls. But if they did, they'd see what was there, right? And for some reason, you know, there are very few of us who are trying to pull that curtain open to expose everything for what it is. You know, we're so worried about, you know, saving face and not admitting any type of fault uh, that we try to make it about something else instead of making it about ourselves and, and how we can improve ourselves and what we're doing. You know, as long as I can make it about somebody else, it'll never be about me. You know, so that's the type of mentality that I'm really trying to, to challenge. Now, how do our viewers learn more about you, Sean? Uh, they can reach me through my website, which is www.ddmacs.ca, which is on this T-shirt. Uh, the T-shirt's also available for sale on the website. Uh, the proceeds go into um, different programs. My goal is eventually to generate enough revenue through the sale of my T-shirts that I can create and sustain uh, social programs that government can't or won't. Um, and that's really one of, one now, of my Do you have biggest... a not-for-profit running in parallel with your for-profit, or how do you work that? I, I don't. I, I don't, and I don't plan on it. My experience has been in nonprofit that it's profitable for the few, not the many. What is the one piece of advice you'd have for someone with ADHD or someone with a loved one with ADHD? What's one piece of advice you would have? It, it's challenging because although I could not handle the overwhelming amount of people who would try to reach out to me, but I would say, get in touch with me. Please look at my website. Um, because one of the things that I, I really feel separates me from everybody else is that everyone else has tried to identify what was wrong and, and tried to fix you. Uh, when people come in here, it, I'm, it's not about what's wrong with you, it's about what's right with you. And I have you know, individuals and families in my office crying because of the insight that I'm sharing with them. I mean, I'm, I'm talking to parents about their kids not being in school and, and not saying, oh, you know, school's not for Johnny because. It's school's not for Johnny because his thought process is so advanced that our public education system has no idea what to do with him. Well, you know, we had a, a there's something on the books here now that I thought was a step in the right direction. They're going to substitute the requirement in high school that you must take a foreign language, and they're going to substitute coding on computers when you want to. And yeah. I think that's a, a bit of a step in the right direction to start earlier with, again, harnessing your interests and what you're good at and what you want to do and what might earn you a very good living instead of focusing on, no, we've got to have you. You've got to do it this way. Right. And, and it comes down to experiential learning. And I often say there are many types of two kinds of people, right? Those who like olives and those who do not. Those who like onions and those who do not. But the only way you can actually know rather than think is by experiencing it. You have to try it. 
So we need to encourage kids to try things. Put yourself out there. The only way you're going to figure out what you like is by finding out what you dislike. And so we, we need to, you know, I have parents tell me, you know, I put my kid in a million things. Well, then make it a million and one. You know, like give them the opportunity to try something and not like it. Because every time we do that, it brings us a little bit closer to who we actually are. If we don't try it all, we'll never get there. Well, Sean, this has been great. Before I let you go, is there anything else you'd like to uh, say that maybe we didn't get to today? Well, I'm, I'm excited that we found each other. Uh, you know, th this is something that is, that is global. And, and to be connecting to people in, in such a way that gives me goosebumps. And I mean, I experience, I get goosebumps regularly. I get high from my work every day. Like it's, and for me, that's, that's passion, you know, and the fact that you can earn a living doing that, you know, and so I, I there's one thing I want people to know in, in watching this and, and, you know, walking away from it, it's that our reality is what we create, not what somebody else creates for us. You know, there, there are some things that I can do in an hour when, when I'm in the zone that nobody can touch me. And I know that in, in what I do in an hour, somebody else may not be able to do in a week because that's how exceptional I am at it. And so we kind of have this notion that, you know, we need to work from nine to five, um, that we need to earn so much money, and this is what it looks like. And, and I challenge people in, in that notion that things look like how we project them. You know, if you want to be a certain way, then, then be it. Don't, don't let others kind of get in your head and, uh, you know, tell you about all the things that you can't do, you know, because most of the time when people are around us are, are negative and telling us what we can't do, it's because they don't have the gumption to actually attempt it themselves and they're projecting their own stuff onto us, you know. So be your own person. You know, we spend so much of our lives wanting to be like everybody else. And the reality is, if everybody were the same, what kind of world would we live in, you know? Uh, it reminds me of the the song Little Boxes by uh, Mel Melvina Reynolds. Uh, I don't know if you remember that song or not. It's an old folk song that talks about ticky-tacky uh, boxes and houses, right? How everyone is the same and how the, the kids all go to university and grow up to be lawyers and doctors and business executives. And, you know, people have this idea of what they want their kids to be. I want my kids to be happy. That's, that's the only thing I want them to focus on. Be happy. Well, on that note, Sean Smith, don't diss my ability up there in Brunswick, Canada. We're going to say goodbye, and it's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much for all you're doing for so many. Keep up the great work. Thanks a lot, Hacky. I appreciate uh, the interview, and, and I look forward to connecting again soon. Likewise. We've been speaking here at Exploring Different Brains with my new pal, Sean Smith, the founder of Don't Diss My Ability, ddmax.ca. For more information, visit us at differentbrains.com.